Welcome to the Holy City Church Podcast Station. This is Pastor Angel. If you missed Sunday's sermon or want to listen to it again, you're in the right place. We're glad that you can take the time to catch up as we go through God's Word together. So I hope you're ready. But if you're not, grab your Bible. Let's get ready for what God has in store for us today. So if you will, good morning church, and if you will, open your Bibles and stand out of respect for the Word of God, and we are going to be reading the second letter of John. And I don't have to tell you the chapter, because it is just a letter, no chapter divisions. So we're going to be in the second letter of John, and I'm actually going to start in verse 3, and we're going to go to verse 11. Second John, verse 3 through verse 11. And the word of the Lord says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Let us pray, church. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a people by the authority given to us by Jesus himself to come before you, Father, with petition and thanksgiving. And we come humbly and thank you, Father, because you give us this privilege to gather as your church, to gather corporately to worship you, O Lord. We are so grateful that we can do this with freedom, without fear of persecution or retribution. That we come to worship you with joy and gladness in our hearts. And we ask for your blessing this morning, Lord, as we gather and look into your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you open our hearts and that you enlighten us to what you have to say. And I just ask that you use this unworthy servant to provide the truth that you have in store for us today, Jesus. Because it is always in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen. 
Amen. You may be seated, church. And uh, again, it's always a pleasure and an honor for me to stand before you. And as I was looking at this second letter of John, the first thing that came to mind was, wow, this is short. Right. So then I thought this is going to be good. It's not going to be long. We can get on with our Sundays later. Nice, tight, short, compact worship. And we're out of here. And then I saw how much truth there was in this letter, and I thought to myself, oh, wait, I wasn't planning on all this. So I hope you packed a snack. Actually, we might just bring the sandwiches over from the back. You know, in the meantime, if you get hungry, just go grab something, a blanket, a pillow, something. Just get comfortable, and we will get through this. Now, usually I like to start with a recap, let you know where Pastor Angel's been, uh, what we've talked about. But the interesting thing is this letter is just that. It is a recap of everything that John talked about in in the first letter uh, of John, right? And so I'm not going to delve deeply into these points because John said it and covered it completely. And, And Pastor Angel has done a wonderful job of bringing us through that entire letter and exposing it, expounding on it. And, and so we know, we know what we've read here today is nothing new that John hasn't told the church, right? So I'm going to just point out a few things about this letter, and then we're going to get into the two things. Again, two things that, that John has been saying all along. We are to love one another and watch out for the false prophets, what he calls the deceivers, right? This is a, another a warning letter, if you will, warning us to love one another and warning us to be careful of the false prophets and the deceivers. And sometimes we read this and we're like, um, I, I kind of see it in the church that I know where those false prophets are. I know where we're being deceived. But do we really? And that is what we're going to look at today and, and the problem that we still face as a church. I love reading the Bible and reminding myself Whatever problems we're having today, they are not new. The early church was having the problem. The Old Testament, people of God were having the problems. Solomon says it, there's nothing new under the sun. So the, the, this letter, however, I, I didn't read the greeting and the final greetings or um, the salutation, but he basically mentions this elect lady and her children. And there's been a debate as to who the, late, who the letter was written to, right? Is this an actual lady, an actual person with a family, or was this to a church and that family? So here's what, I, after looking at both, and most scholars want to say this was written to a church, and the elect lady is an elect church, a chosen church. But there are some scholars who make a very good argument that it was a person, it was a woman. And here's the beauty of this letter. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Whether we want to see it, and I'm going to do this while I'm going through this letter, that I will refer to it as your family, uh, uh, you as as a family unit, or I'm going to refer to it as the church, and the church has a family unit. So they're so closely related that it really doesn't matter whether it was a lady, uh, an actual lady with a family, you know, speaking about her home, or if it was a church. Or even I heard one scholar talk about it was the lady, her family, and the church gathered in her home, right? 
brings it all together. Again, no problem there. But I'm going to begin with one a little note that really doesn't talk about the love and he doesn't, it's not really concerned with um, the, the false prophets that we have to be aware of. But John, in, in verse 4, and it ties into what Angel was talking about and we were talking about with Gano over this uh, um, celebration of life uh, for, for Tony yesterday. And look at what he says in verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Okay? I rejoiced greatly. Now, this is the other aspect of this letter with John. He, he is showing a lot of emotion towards this family, towards this church. He, he's really showing his love. He, he talks at the end how he'd rather be there and he will come there. So there's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more, it's, a, it's more passionate and there's just, John is really pouring with care and emotion for this family and church family that he's talking to, talking to with this letter. But look at what he says. Some of your children walking in the truth. What does that necessarily imply? That the rest were not. Right? And that's a tough thing to face. That is a tough thing to face. Right? Because what do we want to believe? That all our children will know Jesus. And all our children will follow Christ. And all our children will be saved. And as, past, and as a pastor, what do we want for our church? That not one in our church be lost. But what is the reality? And it just, it, it just stuck out of me. And, and personally, in my own family, I, I am dealing with this struggle. Right? And so I just wanted to point that out to you. That we cannot ever bring down our guard, make assumptions about who knows the gospel and who doesn't, who's a Christian and who's not. We are constantly, especially with our family, our church family, with our own children, we are constantly reminded to share the gospel with each other, to remind ourselves of the truth, uh, um, uh, the truth and love. It, it's, how, it's how John started off this letter, right? We have grace, mercy, and peace with us in truth and love, and we always have to be on top of that, in our own personal family and in our church family. So now, let's jump right into the first part of this letter and what he is going to talk about here. And it has to do with love. That's his message. It was the message in all of 1 John. And here he goes right into it. And notice he says, this is not a new commandment. Everything he's saying here, he already said in 1 John. He said the same thing in 1 John. This is not a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And it is a command, not a suggestion. I think you guys should love one another. I really want you to. I encourage you to. No, it is a command. You must. You shall. Not you may. Right? This is the command that we love one another. But then, and this is where I want to focus on in this text, what is love? What is this love that we are supposed to have for one another? Right? And this is where sometimes we get the wrong ideas. 
We have our own opinions of what this love is. And we also always have to let scripture interpret scripture and let the Bible tell us what the answer is. John does a great job right here of telling us in the very next verse. Because if you were to ask, as you read verse 5, what is love? John says, oh, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. So now he's going back to that beginning. But what beginning is he talking about? He's talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of the apostles' ministry, the book of Acts, Pentecost, the beginning, or is he going all the way back to Genesis 1? Because he's talking about commandments. And we all know the Ten Commandments. Right? So let's look at how love, right, actually fulfills commandments 5 through 10. Okay? And just a quick note. There's a, in churches today, if you actually put this into your Google search, love God, love people, you'll find a list of churches that have that as their slogan, right? Such and such church. Love God, love people, spread the gospel. Such and such church. Love God, love people, serve everybody, right? But what we fail to realize, that that is not the gospel. Loving God and loving people is not the gospel. It is actually a fulfillment of the first ten commandments. Love God, commandments one through four. Love people, commandments five through ten. Right? And when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Right? Bodhi Bhagam puts it, puts it the best. Jesus was asked, what is the number one commandment? What is the greatest commandment? He said, one through four, followed closely by five through ten. Right? So this idea that the Old Testament, those commandments are gone, are just not true for the Christian. We cannot divorce the Old Testament from the New they are there. So when John is talking about commandments, he literally is referring to all the commandments. But he's telling us now, it's love. Love is what makes the difference. Love is what actually changes everything. Right? Because doesn't the gospel teach us that we've been freed from the commandments? Right? We were freed from, but this is what we were freed from. We were freed from believing that the law saves us. We're freed from believing that the law condemns us. Because those were two big misconceptions. If I follow the law of the Ten Commandments, and according to the Pharisees, all 650 that we also invented, I'm saved, I'm good. Not true. The gospel frees us from that. Then there was the other side. I'm terrible because I can't keep any of the commandments, and the law condemns me. Not true. The law brings that truth to the forefront, and we're freed from that. And we were freed from following the letter of the law out of obligation. You must, you must, you must, I will, I can't, but I... And that torment. Because when we do it out of love, it changes everything. And remember, Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And where is Jesus speaking this? In the Sermon of the Mount. And what does he do after he says this? You have heard it say, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you. And what he was doing was twofold. He was establishing himself as God, 
Because only God can tell you or add to. Because he didn't really add, but he broadened it. He said, you know, we all know murder. I kill somebody out of anger, revenge, for all the wrong reasons. That's murder. But what does he say? If you hate your brother to the point that you call him a fool or wish death upon him, that's murder. Right? He added to it. He made it stricter. He didn't loosen it up. He made it stricter. Adultery. Right? What needed to happen for adultery? You had to have sexual relations with a man or a woman who wasn't your spouse. And what did Jesus say? If you look upon that person who isn't your spouse with lust, you've committed adultery. Oh boy. We all just became murderers and adulteries by Christ's definition. So what's he doing? Why is he making it so much harder? Because he was bringing the love. It always comes down to love. And see, by loving one another, by loving God, by loving Christ, I don't follow the letter of the law, but I follow the spirit of the law. I don't follow out of obligation, but out of adoration and appreciation. It is a form of worship when I love my brother and my sister. I am worshiping God. That's why marriage, for those of you that are married, is so important and it's so beautiful. Because if you are not in your marriage to worship God, your marriage is going to fail. Because we're supposed to love one another in marriage. Why? So the husband can feel better and the wife can feel happy, you know, that happy life, happy wife. That is the wrong reason, folks. The wrong reason. It's happy wife, happy husband, together worshiping God. So that people look upon a marriage and say, wow, I want that. That marriage is blessed by God. How is that marriage different from any other marriage? Because all the other marriage I hear, ball and chain and a pain in my butt and I got a, I need a vacation from my spouse. I go to work. To, I've heard all the complaints. I, I used to use all those complaints. It's not what marriage is about. So what's the difference? Love. This is what John is saying. Love one another in all contexts. In the home, parents with their children, children towards their parents. In the church, all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are born again, it is love. It is always love. The other thing we have to, and I want to clarify this morning, and for this we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? And anytime you hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the love chapter, the wedding verse, blah, blah, blah. It has nothing to do with any of that. Because here's the thing about the, the love that Paul is describing here, right? And we got to look at the original Greek. I'm not going to give you theology lessons or scholarly lessons, but just real briefly, there's three types of love or three types, three different words for love. And each of them have, a, there's a different type to it. So when we talk about love, right, you don't love your wife like you love your mother or you love your daughter. Different types of love, right? And there's three words, Eros, agape, and filio. Well, eros is that romantic love. It's a feeling. You get all the butterflies and, oh, it's warm and fuzzy. That's eros, right? And that is usually between a man and a woman. 
Then filio is your brotherly love. It's where the word Philadelphia comes. The city of brotherly love. Philadelphia. Right? And that's a different love, right? Because I don't feel uh, towards Angel and Rafa that, oh, I love you guys. Right? That'd be weird. That would be weird. I'm more like, yo, love you, bro. Bam. Right? Ah. You got to put a little grunt in there just so. Eh. That's filio love. Right? But then there's agape. Agape. Another word for it is charity. Another word is unconditional love, but we go back to that word. So what does that word mean? So let's go to the Bible because Paul talks about this. Now, I know I gave this homework to you many, many sermons ago, the last time I was here, and this came up. And I told you, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at what Paul says love is and what Paul says love is not. Who did it? That's what I thought. None of you. You're all terrible church-going members. I'm kidding. I love you guys. So I did it for you, though. This time I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to give this as homework. I'm going to do it for them. So if you will, turn to chapter 13, if you would like, 1 Corinthians, because I'm, it's going to be out of order. But let's look at what Paul says, this agape love, because that's the word he used is there. He does not use the word eros. He does not use the word filio. He uses the word agape. This is what love is. It is patient. Right? Love is kind. Love rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And love never ends. So these are all the qualities that agape love has. And only one, I would argue, rejoicing, has anything to do with emotion. Because we choose to be patient. We choose to be kind. Let's go back to patience a little. I know that's what we're all working on. Make me feel better and tell me that's what we're all working on because that's what I'm always working on. Patience, right? And there's my biggest test right there. He's 14 years old. He's 5'8". And he wears the same size shoe as me. And boy, let me tell you, he's an exercise in patience. And I've got to choose patience. It's not an emotion. If it was an emotion, I would not be as patient as I'm practicing to be. But these are choices. I choose to be kind. I choose to bear all things. Because let's face it, sometimes I don't want to. I don't feel like it. But what does Paul say love is? This agape love. And what did John just say? It's a command, so I must choose to bear all things. Right? Hope is not emotion. Enduring is not emotion. Let's take a look at what love is not. It is not envious. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. Now, right there, those are all heavy emotions, right? Heavy emotions. Are, are we seeing this distinction of this love that we are called to choose? Of these actions that show our love? It does not insist on its own way. That means it is not selfish. I either choose or I don't choose to be selfish. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It is a command. And it is not emotional love. So whenever we see this word here, and whenever we see it attached to that word command, understand what the Bible is asking of us. And to go deeper, we always are called to be like Christ. And when I look at this picture of love, that's the kind of love God had for us. Right? Jesus, that's the kind of love he showed for his disciples. That's the kind of love he showed on the cross. Because if Jesus for one minute wanted it his own way, let's remember the prayer he asked in the garden. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But he knew he was supposed to be obedient. He knew he was supposed to bear, endure, rejoice. And oh, was he patient and was he kind. That grace and mercy is just kindness at a whole nother level that we can't even begin to understand. So just remember that, church, that that love that we are called to have is the love that Jesus had for us. And it is not emotional. It is a choice. We choose to love even when it's hardest, right? I tell my kids, half-jokingly all the time, I am called to love them even when I don't like them because my emotions are not liking them very much. But my love for them, which is not based on emotional feelings, have to bear, be kind, endure, have patience. Lord, give me more patience. Give us all more patience. And now, going right into verse 7, John changes gears very quickly. Because again, short letter. He's like, this is love. You got to, uh, uh, this is the commandment. Love one another. Just do it. Right? But that we should walk in it. But then right in verse 7, he goes, for many deceivers have, have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why would he put that there? I don't know if you guys knew this. But this is what, remember every letter had a point to it, right? When uh, Paul in the Galatians, he was addressing, when he was addressing false teachers, the Judea Judaizers, always get that word wrong, Judaizers, he was confronting the error of having the Jews from Jerusalem wanting, Christian Jews, mind you, wanting to add circumcision and following of the law to the gospel. And let's be clear, and, and this is what we have to look at in our day and age. Anytime you want to add or subtract anything to the gospel of Jesus, it is no longer the gospel of Jesus. It is no longer Jesus, right? That is a clear litmus test. You want to add, you want to take away, you don't even know Jesus. But this heresy that he was confronting was something based out of Gnosticism and a belief called Docetism, Docetism that said Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he was a deity, that 
the perception of him being a man was an optical illusion. Because at that time, and it was especially common with the Greek believers, because the Greek held on to this Gnosticism that said the body is dirty and evil and uh, uh, prone to disgraceful actions, but the soul is inherently good. Okay? And it led to two different types of actions. It led to asceticism, which means I'm going to, because this body is evil, I'm going to punish it and beat it. And it ran through the early church, right? The practice of kneeling on hard floors and rocks, of taking whips and hitting yourself, of cutting, of beating, beating the body, right? Because the body's bad and I've got to punish it. And then I'm not going to indulge in any pleasures. The monastery idea. I'm going to lock myself away from the, from the world in this, um, in this remote place so I cannot even see the outside world. And we're all going to dress the same and shave our heads so no one's good looking or bad looking or you're not dressed fancy and you're dressed poorly. We all dress the same. Right? <clears throat> and then there was the flip side to this heresy called Gnosticism. That said, well, if the body is so bad, and it's going to be destroyed anyway, but my soul is good, I'm going to let it do whatever it wants. I'm going to get drunk and party and have a lot of sex and do a lot of drugs. And I can, it's what Paul called licentiousness. My soul will be saved. God is good with it because I'm, it's a good soul. But this body, who cares? It's going to be destroyed. So it, it went to those two extremes. And this is what he is attacking he is directing his warnings to because they were coming and promoting that kind of teacher and unfortunately that heresy still exists today remember i told you nothing's changed right and so the ones that are uh, the the, the so-called christians of the of the day that want to be like that ascetic like you know the world is evil the body's evil i'm evil and so I'm going to be a legalist. Let me add all these things. You know, I can't watch TV. I can't listen to the radio at all. You know, um, I'm going to do away with drinking everything except water. Like I'm not even going to have coffee or sparkling water with a little flavor. No, no, no. I've got to deny myself everything. I'm going to make all these things because by following all these rules and keeping myself clean, I'll be acceptable to God. And that's legalism. You know, because sometimes we Christians get accused of legalism for saying, hey, uh, Rafa, you know, slow down. You don't want to get drunk, right? Don't drink so much. Bro, oh, what, what are you talking? Don't judge me, bro. That's legalism. You're trying to make me follow the rules. Uh, yeah, because that's what Jesus commanded us to do, right? John chapter 15, Jesus said, how do I know you love me? You obey my commands. Hmm, Right? But legalism is that extreme form of I'm going to make things up and follow them to get salvation. Right? I address my brother because I have salvation. I know he does too and we are obedient to it out of adoration and appreciation. And when I, listen, this is a, a, a true mark of the, of the true Christian. I've said this before and it's worth repeating is when you, because we're scared to call out our brother in sin. But when you call out a true brother or sister of Christ on her sin, you know what their response is? Like, oh, yes, you're so right. 
forgive me, God. It leads you to repentance. Look at the prophet Nathan when he called out David. Did David say, you're crazy, I didn't do that. Did he keep covering it up? Because he'd been covering it up for a year. But when he got confronted, think of Nathan the prophet, what courage he had to. Because any other king, if he would have reacted incorrectly, would have been, take this fool and kill him. That's what you got as a prophet to the king when you told him what he didn't want to hear. And here he is telling him, David, you're a murderer and an adulterer, bro. And what did David... Read, read Psalm 51. That's all I got to tell you. Read Psalm 51, and there you see David's reaction. So when you ever confront a so-called brother in Christ, and he tells you, bro, oh, don't judge me, bro, and listen, I don't agree, and let me tell you in the Bible where it says I can commit all these sins. You know what? Let's forget about that sin. Let's talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about why you need Jesus, right? Because we don't need to morally correct people that are not born again, that are not Christians. We don't. We need to share the gospel. Let God do the work first. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent, but let's come back. Let's come back. So the two extremes. I already said we have the legalist, right? And then you have the licentious. We still have those licentious people today, right? I'm saved. I'm good. Especially for, and, and listen, I'm not saying this, but some of the pastors I follow who are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, Paul Washer specifically, always laments this about his Baptist uh, brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention because they're sold the idea that if you are, you are a Christian and you have salvation, you can't lose it for it doesn't matter what you do, right? But their idea of being born again and being saved is you said a prayer one day. We know that's not biblical because Jesus said it in John chapter 3, verse 3, that you must be born again. And this is what that idea of just say this prayer, Joel Osteen says it, by the way, after every single sermon. I need to pray for him more instead of hating him so much. Um, he says that. Say this prayer if you want to accept Jesus. And now if you said this prayer and really meant it, that's the caveat that he likes to use. You are now born again. He proclaims you a born again Christian. That is the farthest thing from the truth. But this is what it has created. This is a 2020 survey from the Barna Group, Critical Research Center, Critical Research Center out of Arizona. Very respected. They've been doing this for many years. I was shocked by these numbers. These are people who proclaim to be evangelical Christians. People who proclaim to be evangelical Christians. Because again, I'm giving you these statistics. Why? Because it produces this. 52% of people that... do not believe in objective moral truth, which means that they do not believe the Bible is inerrant, nor is it trustworthy. Seventy-five percent. Forty-three believe that Jesus sinned during his time on earth. That, that's shocking, right? That's like our whole... Theology is based on Jesus was God. He was the sinless son of God. He was God and fully man incarnate. And 
58% believe that the Holy Spirit is just a symbol, the little bird, rather than 62% said that having some faith of any kind was better than having none at all. And it is not important to follow the Christian faith exclusively. You can go be a Jehovah's Witness. You can go be a Mormon. Ah, Muslims, Allah, same God. Heck, be a Jew. Some faith is better than no faith. I, I read it, and I was astounded. I'm reading again to you, and I'm still in, like, unbelief. But this is what passes for Christianity. This is the amount of people that think they are evangelical Christians and have no idea. And, and again, my belief is that this is what's being taught. They're not coming up with this on their own. And this is what John is warning us about because it happens because of false teachers, what he likes to call the deceivers. And so another quick survey I did. I love Google. I'm sorry. Three of the top five churches I can speak. These are three of the five largest churches in the United States. Largest, biggest numbers, you name it, right? The big three. Well, there's five. Two I don't know enough. They have their problems, but I don't know enough to speak specifically of them. So I'll just speak about these three. Lakewood Church and Joel Osteen. Do I need to say anything else? Okay, good. Because if someone even looked like, what, Joel Osteen? He's okay. I, I was going to come off here and have a one-on-one -on -one with you, but no. I'll stay up here because I know you guys know. There's New Spring Church and Perry Noble. He was forced out back in 2016, okay? For of all things, being an alcoholic and having some crazy ideas of what marriage should be. And let me just say, they weren't biblical, right? He made headlines years and years ago because he had a series where him and his wife were in a bed on the top of the church and they did live, uh, like we're doing now, sermons from the bed with his wife. That's the kind of problems that are in that church. And then there's Andy Stanley at North Point Community Church. And if you, what's his dad's name? I just went blank. But he has a famous father with another big name. But Andy Stanley has been making waves lately because he says, we need to divorce the Old Testament. It's a different God. That's a diff different times. Doesn't apply to us. Really? We're going to divorce the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, what if I don't like this teaching over here? Do we divorce that book out? Do we take these teachings out? You can't do it. And then there are two mega churches here in Broward County, if you weren't familiar with them. One is right down the street, Potential Church, right? And the other one is a little bit farther. I forgot that expressway. It's the Sawgrass Glades, Church by the Glades, Okay. So what do these two megachurches and those other three have in common? They are all part of what we call the seeker-sensitive movement. Right? The seeker-sensitive movement says there are people out there seeking God. The first lie. Because if I go to Romans chapter 3, Paul 
is quoting David, who is hearing from God when he says, no one is good. All have turned away. All have sinned. All are unrighteous. All. No one is seeking for God. So how do we come up with this idea that there are people out there seeking? But that's their idea. People are seeking God. And then what do we do to get those people into our church? Let's have contemporary music, secular music at times, fancy band, uh, you know, the big screens everywhere, top of the line sound systems, you know, hey, we, we got to have the right soundboard. Let's get the right technicians. This is going to be a show because we got to make it look good. But not only that, let's get the best speaker. He's got to be good looking, a little bit fit. You know, he can't be overweight. He's got to be easy on the eyes. You know, only 30 minutes. Don't go over too long because then you lose people. And then, wait, 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 that's not enough. We have to have great child care. And the purpose of that childcare is not to teach them the gospel. It's to let them have fun. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, no. We're going to give them the gospel just a little bit. And then we're going to play games and keep it creative and feed them. We've got to give them snacks and drinks so that when they leave, they're going to say, Mom, I love this church. It was so much fun. Can we come back? That's the recipe. Hey, if we want to be a mega church, Angel, take some notes. I can't do it because I'm not good looking enough and I'm not, I'm not, you know, that good up here. But we'll find somebody, you know, Rafa, you're fired. We got to get professional musicians. Mary, you can stay only because we like you. We need a lot bigger TVs. Actually, we got to take over the whole strip mall, right? But we're going to get that many people. We can pay for it. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how easily we can fall into that trap? Because what's the message they're sending? They're not preaching the gospel, folks. They're not preaching the gospel. Right? Because they come in, and it's back to that, back to the original deceivers game that you're all good. You're all good people. You just need to act a little better. You need to read your Bible a little more. You need to pray a little more. None of those things are bad. But we're sold the lie that you're a good person and let me, and then, you know, their sermons, five steps for having a better marriage, three steps for getting a raise, you know, two steps for getting closer to God. There's always formulas and models and uh, programs. Whew. I'm sorry, I get a little worked up talking about this stuff. And here's the thing, too. The same thing is happening with contemporary music. And I'm going to argue and what, oh, let me back up. Why do I mention all these things? And I'm going to get to it in a second. Because before, I'm going to go back 40 years. You had one church. You went to that church. Occasionally, you visited another church. But you didn't hear other pastors. You didn't hear other groups. I don't even think there was Christian radio stations back in the 80s. I don't know. Maybe. I didn't listen to them. But now with contemporary Christian music on your phone, in your house, on the radio, and in front of these churches, I'm sorry, I got to tell you a quick story. Church by the Glades. I've been there in person. <clears throat> I actually just pulled the buddy of mine out of there. And he's going he's gonna to do some really, because he's a true Christian. And, and that is what I always argue, that when you're a true Christian, you eventually see the truth and get out. 
But how do you call yourself a church when on a Sunday morning for Sunday worship, a motorcycle drives into the church with the singer, your lead worship singer, singing Purple Rain by, by, by Prince. It makes me want to cry. And it was done very close to when he died way back when. As some kind of memorial, some honor. I know, Kim, that's how I felt too. I was like. Another time I was actually there for Halloween. Oh my gosh, what a mistake. It wasn't really Halloween. It was just October, but the whole month was Halloween. I thought I was at the Broward Theater of the Performing Arts. And they were having some kind of musical. Because the stage, the props, it looked like a mad scientist lab, like something right out of a movie. I can't tell you the thousands and thousands of dollars they spent on that stuff. This is what passes for church on Sunday, for worship. Deceivers, false prophets, false gospel. And then when we get to music, um, Hillsong, Bethel, Elevation, right? And the, the one thing I will say about Hillsong is their early music started off theologically correct, right? So I'm not even going to talk about Hillsong and where they've come now. Um, but here's, here's one I'm going to mention. And this is, used to be one of my favorite artists. One of my favorite, like this song, when I heard it, I would get all emotional and I'd want to cry, lift my hands and worship and I, until I found out where it all comes from. Carrie Job and the song is forever. Do we got it? Can we cue it up? Just in case you don't know, because when I say it sometimes, I don't even I always forget what the name of the song is. But let, let's listen to it real quick so you know what I'm talking about. Just in case you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, Mary? Next verse. Listen to this next verse. song right did anybody hear any problems in those lyrics in that in that last verse that second verse anybody so that one's not even so bad right because that's a misconception i've heard in other hymns the idea that god looked away that god turned away from jesus when he was on the cross right it's impossible the father first of all has no face no head he is not an actual physical being and he's omnipresent. This is why it's so important we went through the attributes, right? That's why it's so important. He cannot turn away when he is everywhere at all times. 
but not a big deal. I don't mind that creative license or whatever. But before I break this down, you have to know where Carrie Job comes from. And this is what I did not know, right? The church she attends is part of the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. Terrible. Blasphemers and heretics, all of them. And they are seeker-sensitive church. So they're appealing with this emotion and stuff. And all that. So why is this important to understand that she's part of this church of NAR? Because this is a word of faith theology. The New Apostolic Reformation holds to word of faith theology. Let me point it out. So understand this. One final breath he gave, as heaven looked away, the Son of God was laid in darkness. So now Jesus is in the tomb. Now a battle in the grave, the war on death was waged. How is that possible if Jesus on the cross said it is finished? So biblically incorrect. There's no war being waged on death in the grave because Jesus says it is finished. He took care of it on the cross, right? We're all in agreement with that, right? This is the problem. This is what the word of faith uh, theology movement believes. And I'm going to put it, I'm going to let Joyce Myers tells you what they believe. I, I like how Mary's smiling already. You're a Joyce Meyer fan, right, Mary? Jesus paid, this is Joyce Meyer, quote from a book. <clears throat> Jesus paid on the cross and went to hell in my place. Then as God had promised on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The scene in the spirit realm went something like this. God rose up from his throne and said to demon powers tormenting the sinless son of God. So their belief is that when Jesus died, he went to hell and Satan and his demons were tormenting him and punishing him even more. Totally made up, right? I don't have to tell you that. I'm just checking. And God said, let him go. Now listen to this one. This is where we go back to the original heresy. Watch this. Then the resurrection power of Almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus on earth. His grave where they had buried him was filled with light as the power of God filled his body. Get ready for it. He was resurrected from the dead, the first born again man. Because that's what word of faith theology says. Jesus was a man. And then he became God. And we can all do the same thing. Do you see how bad that is? Do you see how bad? But it's so subtle in this song that has so many other theologically correct things. And we want to sing it. But we also sing those verses. Which are theolo theologically incorrect and heretical. Especially knowing where they come from. This is why I love listening to the dead guys. The dead guys who preach. The dead guys who sing. You know why? They're dead. They can't commit adultery. They can't commit heresy. They can't pre preach bad theology. We already know. They've been vetted up. Because that's what Paul says. It's how you finish. It's not how you began. Did you run the race? It's a marathon. And so I know... And when I say dead guys, I'm talking about like your A.W. Tozer, your Spurgeon, all those old classic hymns written by guys that we know were true Christians. That's why I'm down. I've narrowed it down. It's, it's Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham, and John MacArthur. And now, you know what I've done too? Because two of my favorites, uh, Matt Chandler, 
David Platt. I'm not listening to those guys anymore. And what it's allowed me to do is even with these three guys that I got left that I use for supplemental teachings, I've taken them off that pedestal. That's the problem. We put these guys in pedestals, and then when they start spewing heresy, when they go down that road of bad theology, we like them so much and we put them up so high where they don't belong that we follow right along. We can't do that. We can't do that because here's what's happening in those churches. No one is preaching the gospel. No one is telling you when you walk in, you are a sinner. You are not good. You are bad just like I am. See, it's not a, I'm a born-again Christian, I'm good. No, no, I'm good because of Jesus. Ask Angel, ask anybody who, every time I, oh, but you're a good person. It makes me cringe because I know I'm not. Only Christ in me is good. That's the only thing I boast about. Who did I learn that? The Apostle Paul. That's what he taught us. I am not good, and I got to tell you, you're not good, but there's hope. This is where the joy and the happiness comes from. In being able to tell somebody, it's okay you're not good, I'm not good, but Jesus Christ is. Remember when the rich young ruler came and asked and, and wanted to ask him the question, and what's the first thing he said? Good teacher. And Jesus, why do you call me good? No one is good. Now Jesus is point, pointing to himself and saying, you correctly called me good. Because I'm God. But no one else is good. Why do we call each other good? Listen, I'm going to challenge you. Stop, telling, stop, stop saying to people, hey, you're good. And oh, Let's use nice. Nice is much better. We can be nice. But we're not good. We are not good. And nobody is telling the lost sinner this. Be, but, the, you know, the, again, the good part, the good news is we have the answer. Because Jesus did bear our sins. And it wasn't, see, here's another thing we get wrong. Oh, Jesus bore my sins. That wasn't the hard part. It was not the hard part. It was the wrath of God because of those sins. That was the hard part. The wrath of God made whatever men did to him, the whipping, the beating, the crucifixion, made that look like tea in the park on a Sunday. The wrath of God is what we fear but we're saved from it because Jesus offered that to us freely out of love, out of his great love, the agape love, not emotional, a choice. Jesus chose to be obedient and do that. There's a story I love to share because I saw this truth and, and this used to be like one of my favorite uh, gospel sharing things, you know, like an analogy. And, you know, uh, when you're not saved, you're in the ocean. We're floating, Right? And we need help and we're about to drown. And then someone comes in that lifeboat, right? Or a boat and throws you the ring. And the ring is the gospel. And you throw, they throw you the, the ring and then you grab onto it. And then they pull you to shore. The gospel saves you and brought you to shore. And then it, it goes on and, you know, but we forget that the gospel and we drop it there and we walk up the mountain and we get and we forget all the other people. And it sounds beautiful, right? It sounds like, wow, yeah, so yeah. And I need to get back out there and throw the ring. Here's the problem with that analogy. We are not, we are not people flailing around in the ocean, right? We are dead at the bottom of the ocean. 
We have drowned and sunk like a rock to the bottom of the ocean. And Vodibakum puts it best, dead men don't grab. Dead man can't reach for that ring. That's why Jesus has to save us. That's why salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't grab nothing. We don't reach for nothing unless Jesus saves us. That's the message that people need to hear. And John wraps it up as I have to with the exhortation, don't let them into your house. Because back in those days, these uh, preachers were doing the circuit and they'd go around and you, you'd let them in and you'd, they'd, you know, for food. So it's kind of same idea. They needed food and money, but they would bring in all sorts of crazy teachings. So nowadays, no one's coming to your house except the Jehovah's, right? I, I keep waiting for them to come to my house and I can't, I never, I'm not home when, when they, because I'm going to invite them in. Oh yeah, I'm going to invite them in. I'm going to make them feel comfortable. I might even lock the door, put the chain on so they can't leave. But here's where the false teachers and the deceivers are coming into your house if you let them. Because we're not letting them in here. Am I right, Angel? They're not coming in here, bro. I'm telling you right now. We'll vet them. We'll talk to them. Any guest preacher, uh, teacher, they, they need to be theologically correct. So that's not a problem in the house of God. But where are they coming in? The internet. The internet. We have it on our phones now. That's not even a phone. That's a computer for crying out loud. The internet, the greatest source of information and just as equally the greatest source of misinformation. A great source for good, but I would say multi, uh, exponentially greater evil. Evil, straight up evil. So you have to be careful. You have to be careful who you're listening to, the songs you're listening to, because John is warning us. Do not let them in. And listen to this last exhortation. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked deeds. Anytime we listen to that music and listen to that false teaching and make that click on that channel and support these people, we, not me, I'm not saying this, John is saying, we are partaking in their wicked works. In their wicked works. So be careful, my brothers and sisters. I leave you with that, the exhortation to love one another as Jesus loved us, to spread the gospel with one another, especially those that don't know, but don't neglect sharing it amongst the brothers and sisters. The gospel's not one time I did it and I'm good. It's an everyday recognizing of who Jesus is and be Hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. If you have any questions, would like to connect or listen to our library sermons, jump right over to our website at www.holycitychurch.us. Again, we want to thank you for listening. And remember, this podcast is not intended to replace your time at the church. So we hope you have a blessed week and talk to you again next week on Catch Up with Holy City Church.